Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Alicia. Yeah, thanks. Happy to be here. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yes, I I love this question. <laughs> um, I grew up in Arlington, Virginia, and like a typical weekday dinner was a dish called salmon patties. And the salmon came in a can. And I think it was probably lightly floured and seasoned and like shaped and then yeah. kind of fried in a pan and served alongside peas or broccoli. And I loved it. Um, <laughs> I really liked, I definitely really liked that dinner. And I imagine yeah. for my parents, it was good because it probably took like 12 minutes to make. Um, <laughs> and my mother grew vegetables. And I remember in the summer, there being like a lot of corn, corn on the cob. I remember there being like tomatoes and all of those like summer veggies. Um, and also very important, <clears throat> sorry, I have a cold. Very important meals were around Jewish holidays. So we would have um, like a beef brisket, which I'm pretty sure would have been like a Passover dish. And because you don't eat flour around that week. Right. So you tend to have like a roast meat. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> My mom would um, braise it with Heineken. It had to be <laughs> Heineken. And she would like sip half a can as she cooked. Um, and then kugel, which is like an egg noodle pudding um, that happens around the, the new year. So um, I also was a vegetarian from ages 12 to 20, which was like, honestly, sort of a random decision. I only started reading all of the kind of literature, um, like diet for a new planet after I'd made the decision. So I don't quite know where it came from, um, but it was... I was not a very model vegetarian. I subsisted on granola bars, bagels with cream cheese and quesadillas for a long yeah. time. <laughs> That's well, what I ate. <laughs> I love that. And then, you know, you came to natural wine eventually and I'm going to jump a lot and I'm sure we'll work our way backwards, but I wanted to ask, how do you define natural wine? Because I think it's important to have how you think of it first before we talk about your life, your book, because it is such a huge part of everything. And yeah, especially the memoir. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to get into it. Um, <laughs> there's never enough that can be said about what it is because <laughs> yeah. it's still not a legally defined term. However, right. that is slowly changing. Like France has introduced a category called Van Methode Nature, in which they, I think they visit the winery and they analyze the wines to make sure they meet the definition. And we might see more of that in the future. Um, but yeah, it needs to be from an organically farmed vineyard. And I'll put that first and foremost, because um, nothing else matters if the grapes yeah. are coming from poisoned farming. So no herbicides, fungicides, um, and those, those are really the main things, pesticides as well. So organic farmers will use copper and sulfur and lots of like plant-based treatments mm -hmm. to manage grapevines and, and grapevines do need a lot of spraying and a lot of mm -hmm. management. Um, then we're talking about wine made with very minimal intervention. And a lot of wine drinkers will be surprised to know that stuff is added to wine because since it's not considered a food, Right. Um, it's not required to list any of those additives on the label. So if you walk into a winemaking store, there's a whole section 
of stuff that makes your wine taste a certain way. Um, before that, there's packaged yeast, and there's nothing evil about adding packaged yeast. Yeah. Um, it's just like an alt, it's it's an altered way to make a wine, right? Mm -hmm. And once you start with an altered way, you've interrupted the natural process, and you're going to need to keep adding stuff. Um, yeah. So no yeast, no flavorants, no added wood chips, no mega purple, no um, no fining and filtration. So you're mm -hmm. just getting the grapes. Um, yeah. There are like a, quite a lot of people we consider natural winemakers do add small amounts of um, SO2, sulfur dioxide, commonly known as sulfites or sulfur, a very like hotly debated word and topic. Um, and personally, I would say when you're getting past 30 parts per million sulfites added, we're not really, I'm not sure it's like a winemaker who really cares about being natural. Mm -hmm. um, however, I still celebrate biodynamic farming. So if they're yeah. adding 60 parts per million sulfites, I'm not so mad yeah. at it. Um, I'll just add, Alicia, that like, especially in the past couple of years, I've really come to think about the idea of being anti-capitalistic as something part of making natural wine to an yeah. extent. Well, can you talk more about that? <clears throat> yeah. And um, I think it's definitely in theory because I don't know when there will ever be something that measures if you're anti-capitalistic, <laughs> but um, you know, natural wine is definitely a culture based around personalities and relationships and mm -hmm. kind of passing on what it was like when you visited this winemaker. Um, yeah. I mean, if a wine is made as part of a big corporate thing and, and LVMH is the mm -hmm. owner of that winery, um, I'm not, I'm not interested even right. if they farmed organically. I'm just, yeah. I'm just not because where's the spirit? Like yeah. it, I want, I want something where the winemaker like touched the bottles and touched yeah. the wine and, and even very small natural winemakers do have someone full-time helping in the cellar. So mm -hmm. I'm not under the illusion that there's like one person doing everything, yeah. <laughs> everything. That's not the case for us either, um, where we make wine. But yeah, I, I want it to be a small operation because that that is more caring for individuals. Yeah. And um, there was a case last year, a winemaker in Puglia that was in the news a lot really mm -hmm. showed us what can happen. I mean, that's a massive operation. Yeah. It was yeah. from the beginning, everyone, a lot of people suspected something was not right. Yeah. It turned out to be true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think all of that is very tricky. You, we really have to ask someone selling you the wine for as much information as possible. How are you going to know all that stuff? Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. No. And I love that because I think that we have to talk about in food, in beverage, when someone is scaling up and is readily available, it's always a red flag. It's always a red flag for something to be always abundant, always available in every store. Like we know that the alcohol we see in every single bodega is not going to be necessarily the best made, uh, the most caring for the environment, the most caring for the labor that went into it. Um, and that's what I love. I love that about natural wine is that it's so specific and it's so maker driven and it's so, you know, place driven. And that that's the and that's really I got that, too, from your memoir, which 
called You Had Me at Pet Nut, which follows you from being a waitress and journalist in Brooklyn to a writer and now a winemaker in South Australia. You know, how, how has delving into this world affected you as a writer and how has, you know, being a winemaker affected you as a writer? How has, you know, how has this influenced you and your work? Um, it has helped me so much in understanding the year-long cycle of winemaking. Yeah. I mean, as a journalist living in a city, you're generally you're invited by some kind of regional association. They buy your flight, and you have the privilege of spending seven days in a region, seeing a very selected group of yeah. winemakers, and you just don't get the full story. Mm -hmm. And I've really benefited from doing it myself and seeing other people throughout the year and, and what they struggle with and the challenges that they face and the choices they make and their attitudes, like, and, and what, how they choose, you know, like um, you see it as this delicious wine and this blend, whatever. Yeah. And from their point of view, that wine started out as a disaster because yeah. the kangaroos attacked that patch the grapes were so hard to pick. And then they decided this, they decided that, and then finally got blended with this because they didn't know what to do. And then suddenly it was good. Yeah. And um, that backstory is really important in terms of what questions I ask people and how I choose to write about them. I, I think I write about winemaking less and less. And I write more and more about like um, lifestyle and the choices people make which influence ultimately their, their wines. Um, yeah. So it's, it's helped me immensely. Um, it's like, it's a really good thing to, to be, to have your, like, even if you just had one hand involved in a project, I think it would really help writers. Definitely. Right. For sure. And you know, how the memoir is like in its detail about the wines you've drank over the years is just, you know, stunning, but there is so much detail. And I'm like, how did she do this? I was like, have you kept tasting notes and diaries over this time? Uh, you know, how did you recreate those memories in such a specific and, and vivid way? Yeah, I'm looking at this spot on my desk right now because when I moved to Australia, that spot was like stacked high with notebooks going back to 2014 when I first went to Burgundy. Mm -hmm. So like almost seven years of journals and I refused to throw them out because I, I was even then I was like, I maybe I'll use this for something. And eventually I was like, I'm going to write a book mm -hmm. and um, I have kept, yeah, I've kept like pretty intense notes about all the wines and all the winemakers and to some extent, personal notes as right. well in, in like a separate journal. So um yeah, and I really, I really recommend that. Like, have one journal for your personal stuff, and then one for your professional. And I mean, I, I filled in some things with emails, like going mm -hmm. back to emails with friends and family. Like, when did we go here, and when did we go there? Photos on my iPhone to yeah. recreate things. Um, yeah, because that that's really important. And in terms of the the chapter at Domain Moss where I worked harvest. Um, I basically just spent every night writing in my journal there for like 45 minutes. And I think because it was such a vivid experience also, like scenes from that, I mean, I remember those two weeks more vividly than I remember like 
half of my childhood. <laughs> like it's just so vital to me right. right now. Yeah. Right. I've lost a lot of journals and well, I have like all of my teenage and childhood journals in the garage at my, the house where I grew up. And then I, but I lost a journal from a very important time and I oh. am still really upset about it. Like I'm so concerned. Like it was such, it was very thorough notes and I'm like, how am I going to ever recreate this like I guess I just won't which is but at least you know the writing of things does make it more concrete in your mind anyway like you really do inscribe it on your mind which is something but I was so impressed and and actually inspired by those tasting notes I was like I really because I I always have this idea that I'm going to be that person who takes extensive notes on things and then I'm like I am just not I am always going I have pictures of like everything I've eaten and drank for the last six years though on my phone so that's (laughs) that's useful it'll pay Apple a lot of money for the storage Um, but another thing I loved about your memoir is that you don't shy away from describing hangovers, but they're like, they're very neutral. Like you don't talk about being hungover in like a self-loathing or self-critical way. It's kind of just like, this is an effect of living this life, doing this job, um, drinking these wines and, you know, uh, I've read, I'm sure you've read people talk about how you don't get na- hangovers from natural wine, which is funny. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, why was it important to you to, to to document those effects and not shy away from, you know, those side effects of, of being in this world? Yeah, I think it was impers- important for the personal aspect of my yeah. memoir. I mean, as you know, I I'm, I'm kind of using natural wine in a way to document a personal transformation. Like I, mm-hmm. I've changed a lot in the past few years and I went to some pretty dark places. Yeah. And I think when you're in that place, alcohol, no matter what, what kind can be a, a form of self-harm. And mm-hmm. to say that that doesn't exist in the natural wine world is just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, there's lots of overconsumption and partying <clears throat> and I've had some amazing times drinking Magnums until 3 a.m. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think it can be a, a form of um, like a lack of self-care and, and a yeah. form of self-harm. And I so I think I documented that because that's that's where I was. And yeah. I, I thought that I was going to be living the dream and I wanted it to look on social media like I was living the dream, mm-hmm. but I was not. Yeah. Um, and Yeah, I guess a bit more broadly speaking, like the idea that natural wine doesn't give you a hangover can can have some relevance because I I think if you drink a few glasses of natural wine compared to a few glasses of like wine from a supermarket, you you will probably notice that you feel better. And I've heard that from so, 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 so many people. But when we're talking about someone that drinks natural wine, on a regular basis, yeah. they're going to, yeah. they're going to go out on a Friday and drink like a whole bunch of wine and they're going to have a hangover the next yeah. day. Like yeah. it, it's the <laughs> alcohol that does that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, so. it's funny because we've only really natural wine has only just arrived in Puerto Rico. And so we're, we've been going a little overboard for sure. So it was funny to read, if not funny, <laughs> like, yeah, as you're saying, it, it is a dark description of a time. And, but at the same time, it's like, oh, it's, it's, it was actually for me, like reassuring in that it was like, oh, right. Like this, this stuff, 
even though I've been told like in this wellness way that like natural wine isn't supposed to have the same effects. It's like, no, actually overindulgence of all mm-hmm. kinds has the same effects. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. But, you know, and you have a real, a love for Paris that's so well-documented in the book. You're now in Australia. I also left New York in the last couple of years. Um, you know, how has being outside of the US and specifically New York City affected your work, do you think? Like not just as being a winemaker, but just like that perspective of being outside of a place that I think, I think once you get out of New York, you realize that it's very parochial and like, um, and a bit shut off from, from reality in the world. I don't know if you feel that way, um, but yeah, how is how has things changed for you since you left New York? Yeah, I just think broadening your perspective and living abroad is so important. I don't I don't know if all Americans realize how myopic the viewpoint from within the states can can be. I I am sure that quite a lot of people do realize (laughs) that, but um, it's been really good to actually like just be able to see the world from a broader standpoint. I mean, Australia is such a bizarre kind of place in the world, but um, (laughs) for us, like Japan is more of a neighbor, like it's just different um, kind of, we have different like benchmarks and different relationships with the world here. Southeast Asia is like very close. Um, So it's been really interesting. I think, I think I just needed to leave New York. And I, I mean, I've seen a lot of people move upstate as well. New York is so hard if you're not from money. Yeah. Um, And I mean, how much, how, how long can you go on like accumulating cre- credit card debt and living in suboptimal situations and yeah. not being able to fully, I mean, and I, I did offer myself some things like I went to the bathhouses in the East Village, like mm-hmm. once a month during winter, I used to go to a Chinese body worker on the Lower East Side. Like I tried, I tried, but it's really hard when you're not making like the big bucks, but I gained so much. And I, I like being there and taking fiction writing workshops and journalism workshops and meeting people going to literary magazine events. Like I took that all with me and it's just, it's just here. It's just with me. And now I get to enjoy other perspectives, people that have grown up in other places and and learn about their lives. And um, so I feel like I feel pretty good about the decision. The pandemic has been like incredibly hard. I haven't been to the States in 2018. I haven't seen my family or my friends. And I didn't, yeah. I didn't mean to have such a, like a clean break. I was not yeah. trying to like abandon ship and never see, <laughs> you know, like we've been back to New York once and it was like four days, like yeah. went to four horsemen, went to Roberta's, saw a handful of people and that was it. That's not yeah. how... I imagined it. So um, it has been really hard in some ways too. Yeah, no, like we were, we were saying before we started recording that, you know, it's interesting that you have to leave New York, especially when, you know, maybe your life up till moving there was, well, I grew up on Long Island, so it's a different, but like is, uh, is guided toward this. And you think that like, it's an achievement in and of itself to be there and you have to make the most of it. And if you're not happy, then that's, 
you know, a personal failing of some kind when it's really the city making it, it's so unlivable for people who aren't doing six figures. Um, and now probably honestly, honestly, like more than that, <laughs> like high six figures. Um, and it, it is interesting to, for me personally too, to have the success that I wanted, like, but I had to leave New York for that, but I didn't even know that I had to do that. I just, it just was reality. Like it was the universe pushed me out. And then that was when everything good actually started to happen for me. Um, but it's wild that that, that that is the reality because, you know, I do love New York. I wish it worked. <laughs> oh, I know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but similarly, you know, you write a lot in the book about the pains of being a freelancer, which I obviously know well. And, you know, that mainstream media wasn't interested in work about natural wines. I wanted to ask how that has that changed in recent years? Is self-publishing still the best route for good writing on natural wine? Mm. Um. Probably still. Yeah. I mean, there's there's the wine zine yeah. based in New York, which is this really cool publication. To be honest, I've never gotten my hands on a copy, but I think it's widely available like in the States. Yeah. Um, Punch Drink, you know, Punch Magazine has been doing a little bit of coverage on natural wine over the years. And that's a nice um, viewpoint. Um, and I have seen some increased interest in mainstream and in smaller publications. It does seem to kind of reiterate some of the same topics. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing that PPAT has always done is, is that, which no mainstream publication will ever do, is just profiles of natural winemakers. Yeah. And th these are people who are important if you definitely love and care about natural wine. Yeah. And so a mainstream publication would not assume that about their yeah. audiences, whereas I can assume that about my readership. Um, I don't know. I guess for, for me, what's been more interesting is just seeing in the past year and a half, like the like well and true diversification of voices mm -hmm. and topics yeah. finally um, is great. Yeah. It's really, really great. I'm like, wow, so many more interesting articles are coming mm -hmm. out. Interesting people kind of being elevated and, um, I'd love to just see more of that. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what will be filling kind of the space now that PPET is going to stop publishing regularly, right. but, um, I'd love to see something else. Come right. Yeah. Well, what, what did you, why did you make that decision for it to stop publishing right now? Um, the amount of like admin and kind of computer work involved has just become hard yeah. um, with being a mother and I'm looking out the window. At the <laughs> uh -huh. So we planted um, vineyards in the past uh -huh. two years. So we have 6,000 baby vines oh, wow. um, and we work them basically by hand. Um, and I make wine. Um, I would like to maybe slightly, possibly slightly increase nothing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I make less than 3000 bottles, right? right it's right. all done by hand. Um, and yeah, I'd like for our daughter to be more a part of our lives on the farm. I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't think I can justify the time spent in front of the computer, especially now that it's slightly less fun. Cause I can't yeah. like fly to Paris and <laughs> go around Europe, Europe for two months visiting right. winemakers, which was yeah. kind of the original idea for the mag. Yeah. So, um, 
it's just it just feels right i mean 10 issues was great like that's yeah. an accomplishment and i've loved working with all the people involved and it's like you know you don't have just because something seems like a success doesn't mean you have to keep right going um i might do like an encore edition one day i'm very interested in doing a podcast i love yeah. just having conversations like this it's yeah. much more rewarding actually yeah. That, yeah. Then doing admin work. <laughs> I yes. think that's why I decided to do, like, I needed to figure out something for paid subscribers. And I was like, well, I can just talk to people. That seems, yeah. that seems, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's yeah. not as hard as you think it is to do a podcast at all. And cool. I think that would actually be really great. I, I know there mm -hmm. are wine pod. I'd feel like that's, that's a, a niche that you still are one of the few people that could fill. Um, but yeah, uh, it's funny. Uh, Pipette was being sold here in San Juan. I don't know if you know that, but there was a, there's a cafe that was selling the magazine. Um, yeah, yeah. Cafe, yeah. was it Re cafe Regina? Regina? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I was like, that's so funny. It's like the, just something that like ended up in this, this tiny city, um, which is so cool. Um, but I wanted to ask, what are the biggest misconceptions you see about natural wine that are still like talking points because I, I even as a casual like reader of this kind of stuff I'm like I, I feel like there's still like a lot of narratives that are mm -hmm. uh, wrong <laughs> I don't know okay um, I I hear the idea that it, you can't find it anywhere or it's too niche and yeah. um you know, like, oh, but it's not in just regular restaurants, right? Like it's this niche thing. And I think that is partly, I think we can partly blame this mentality of if you know, you know. Yeah. Um, and we're all guilty of that to some extent in the natural wine world, because there are some bottles where it's like, if you know, you know, like this guy <laughs> makes, you know, 300 bottles of this in a tiny shed in the mountains of the Rhone Valley. And it's amazing. And yeah. you wouldn't like it anyway. And that, that yeah. attitude just comes up a lot. But I have seen so many companies really just do the opposite in recent years and really push to like educate and share and actually distribute natural wine to places where it did not exist. Um, yeah. So one example is a company called Mysa, M-Y-S-A. And they're in the US just distributing amazing natural wine and they do lots of like education on their Instagram posts. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, like the proliferation of small businesses selling pipette in small towns around the world has really shown me that it is everywhere. And it yeah, is yeah, like yeah. a force. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious if you had any other misconceptions in mind. No, no, no. I think actually, you know what, I'm probably thinking of like maybe past thing, you know, there was, and I think maybe that's actually exactly the misconception that, that has prevailed, which is that it's just people in Brooklyn guzzling orange wine and it's not a thing anywhere else. It's not something that's interesting to the regular person. It's not something that's interesting mm -hmm. to older people, um, that it, it is just occupies a very niche space that a lot of it is bad or flawed and that sort of thing. And like, I liked in, in your memoir, you talk about enjoying like things that might seem off or wrong to other people like just finding mm. the beauty in in any any piece of it because I think that yeah. that I think that if we change like it's a problem of the narratives of food and and drink generally I think is like to think that there is a right 
something is correct. All there is one correct thing, and anything that deviates from that is incorrect <laughs> or something. You know, well, it's a big, big problem with vegetables and produce. Right. That's a really big problem. But with wine, yeah, you reminded me that there's the misconception that it will go bad and spoil and rot because it doesn't have preservatives. Sulfur dioxide is a preservative. And I'll just touch briefly upon that. It's not true. Um, you do find like volatile acidity, which is a sort of a vinegar sort of flavor in some wines, but that happens from fermentation. That happens from day one. And it does not mean that the wine has gone bad. It's not spoiled. And natural wine ages phenomenally it just needs to be like in a refrigerated condition, like um, 55 degrees Celsius. Um, sorry, we can work out later what that is in Fahrenheit. But so I've had natural wines that are like 10, 10 years old, basically. Mm -hmm. No sulfites added, stunning, pristine. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I do talk a lot about flaws and where they come from in winemaking from like my, my experience making wine in the book. And mm -hmm. I definitely would, yeah, like I'm always happy to talk kind of more about that because it, it's a very complicated topic. But my takeaway is if you want to support people that make wine organically in this very beautiful artisanal way without chemicals, mm -hmm. then you might, you might occasionally get a wine that tastes a little wild because it has yeah. a little bit of volatile acidity, but we don't want chemicals on our prop. Like we exactly. don't want them on our, our farm. Our daughter can walk around the winery and play with stuff. And I don't have to worry. She's going to put her hand into some chemicals. We don't right. have them at all. Right. <laughs> and for you, how do you define abundance? Hmm. Okay. <clears throat> I love that. This question, um, abundance is such an interesting word, and yeah. um, because I think it hits upon a problem of being human, which is mm -hmm. this persistent idea that we lack something. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very, very fundamental part of being human. And I mean, I'm we grow food, we make wine. Um, if if the climate crisis ended capitalism as we know it tomorrow, we'd probably be able to like, sort of be self-sufficient yeah. with all the people around us that make other things. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, I would absolutely miss, I would miss so much. And I, I, I do right now, like for, for me, like a lot of the book is about a, a friendship with someone who is in Paris, who I haven't right. seen in years. And I, like, I feel like abundance is having that person who can come over and just make ravioli with you on a Tuesday afternoon yeah. and, mm -hmm. and drink wine and like go to the market and eat oysters on a Thursday morning. And yeah. like that, that is abundance having that person in your life. So I think it's always a bit, um, very human of us that no matter how much we have, we can feel a lack. And yeah. I think accepting that is um, something important to work on for me. For sure. Yeah. Well, how has the, the pandemic has been hard in Australia? How, how has it been for you? It's surreal not being allowed to leave. Yeah. I, I don't know if people outside Australia fully understand that we are not able to leave. Mm-hmm. 
like you have to get permission to leave and they're denying it to most people. And then if you do leave, it's almost impossible to get back. Right. Like right. very, very, very hard to get back. Very expensive. Two weeks of hotel quarantine. And um, I don't know, I've like Australia provides Medicare. It provides a high minimum wage, um, like certain things are, mm-hmm. are provided. And so like there's this kind of relationship with the state where when they tell people what to do, it's kind of expect like there's it's a totally different concept of what the state is. Yeah. Um, and I guess the American in me just hates it. But mm-hmm. <laughs> at the same time, like, would we have gone abroad with a one-year-old baby right. who is vulnerable? Um, yeah. Would we go abroad now that she's not vaccinated, but we are? Um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we probably would, given the data <laughs> around kids, which I've, yeah. like, listened to on every podcast available and read about in every scientific paper available. Um, the pandemic has been hard everywhere, but I've never felt so isolated like yeah. as a, a new mother in a country yeah. I've only lived in for a few years, which is literally an island, like at the end of the world, I've never felt so isolated. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping it's it's hard not to be able to go to the States for my book release. It's yeah. really, it sucks. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping like that I'll get feedback from people that will be sort of like lift my mood a little bit that people yeah. will be kind of sharing their experiences of reading the book and and reaching out. I mean, I would just, I, I would love that. I read basically all messages in some yeah. form. Um, so I'd, I'd be thrilled. <laughs> well, what do you have planned for the launch, at least virtually? Um, at this point, I'm still researching that. Um, yeah. But so your podcast will be part of it, um, but I'll, I'll probably do some kind of like online tasting. So yeah. I will be sure to share any update on that on my Instagram, which is yeah. at Rachsig. Um, and I also have a newsletter. It's just like a monthly ish thing and you can sign up. Um, there's a link in my Instagram profile and it's like, I recommend natural wine and books. Um, mm-hmm. I read a lot. I read literary fiction and nonfiction. Um, so for people who care about things other than wine and food, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm your person. And I kind of talk about, I don't know. Yeah. I talk about what I'm reading or like yeah. stuff that I'm listening to. Sometimes I talk about music. It's a bit, it's a bit of everything. Yeah. I talk nice. about the magazine, obviously, of course. Too, so. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking this time so early in the day. <laughs> Yeah, it was was great to talk with you. Um, Yeah, awesome to connect. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.